Bibles, let's turn to, in your one hand, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And your other hand, you can hold in the book of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, last time that we looked at this epistle, 1 Peter chapter 3, we discussed how Peter is bringing this section that, that starts uh, in verse L, oh, oh, verse 11, sorry. <laughs> starts in chapter 2, verse 11. You see, that's, wow, Afrikaans and English, my head just doesn't cope. But he's bringing this section to a close that started all the way back in chapter 2, verse 11. And you see that in that word there in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, um, where he says, Finally, be ye all of one mind. That finally, uh, as I explained last time, connects whatever comes before this verse with whatever is coming right after this, and he's finishing off this section. Now, you will remember the broader context of where we find ourselves in here is with keeping a good testimony. A Christian should keep a good testimony in the world, even if the world makes it very difficult to keep that test testimony. That's so important. You know, at the time that Peter wrote this epistle, these believers that he was writing to were undergoing some very violent persecution uh, in the Roman Empire, and they were scattered throughout. And you can find that again in chapter 1, verse 1, where he mentions the area specifically where he initially sent this letter to. But they were scattered because they were so violently persecuted for this new faith that they were following, this new faith of believing in, in Jesus Christ. You see, the Romans couldn't handle the fact that Christians just didn't worship the, the Roman idols anymore. Uh, it completely went against the very heart of what it meant to be a Roman in, in the Roman Empire. You know, almost everything that the Romans did flowed from this worship of their Roman gods, their idols. And in that time, if you were part of the Roman Empire, you were expected to act like a Roman and even take on those gods. You know, we've, we've got that saying, when in Rome, do like the Romans do. Well, there you go. If you're, if you're in the Roman Empire, you're expected to act like a Roman in every way. And so they became suspicious of the Christians, and they thought that at worst, the, these Christians wanted to overthrow the government and Roman civilization, just mess it up. But at the very least, they thought that the Christians were part of some strange cult and didn't want, to, want anything to do with what it means to be Roman anymore. And that was simply unacceptable. And so, mostly because of this and some other factors, the Christians were hated by the Romans. And like anybody that is going through a tough time, they needed to be encouraged, and they need, needed to be instructed on how they should handle the situation that they find themselves in, which is a very difficult situation, I'm sure you can imagine. I mean, how should they react to people that are really out to get them? Like, really, they're not imagining things. Not because they messed up somehow, or because they were particularly evil or anything like that, but simply because they left the idols of Rome and they turned to Christ. What should they do? Now, as we studied this section, like I said, from chapter 2, verse 11, all the way down um, to chapter 3, verse 7, uh, we saw that Peter didn't tell them to rise up against the government because they were so mistreated. 
That's not the Christian way. Instead, he told them that the will of God is for the Christian to submit to that government so that those people that have these misconceptions about Christians uh, and what it means to be a Christian and what Christians stand for so that they can finally be silenced. He told Christian employees to submit to their employers even if their employers treat them unfairly. (laughs) He told Christian wives to submit to their husbands and to fulfill their role as a wife in that marriage, even if their husband is not a believer. And the same goes for the husbands. He also told the husbands in chapter 3, verse 7, you should love your wife, and you should fulfill your role as the husband in that marriage the way that God set it up, even if your wife is not a believer. Now, folks, those things are hard to do. You know, it's easy to stand and, and, and to say these things. It's harder to implement especially if you are treated unjustly and you are hated simply because of what you believe in, not that you did anything. And you may well ask yourself, well, what kind of life is that? I think it's a fair question. How can a Christian still have a good, enjoyable life while he is going through such tough times? How is that possible? And that is actually what we're going to look at today. But first, let's just bow our heads and we ask the Lord to lead us. Lord, we thank you that we can be here today. We thank you that we can sit here and open up your word in our laps, that we can read your word and that we can learn from it and from you. We ask that you will please illuminate whatever we're going to learn today by your spirit. Lord, teach us so that we can understand and so that we know how we can implement these things, apply it in our lives on a daily basis. We thank you for all that you do, and thank you so much for being here with us. Amen. All right, so what is a good life? What is a good life? I think that's a fair question, you know. I thought about this this past week as I was preparing for this sermon, and the picture came to mind of these commercials that you normally see on TV or before a movie or something like that, you know, and where they try to sketch out what we, I think, mostly think a good and an enjoyable life is. You know, the specific type of commercial that I thought about is this young, handsome guy, you know, he's driving down this beautiful country road with his beautiful sports car, convertible sports car, you know, it doesn't have a roof on it, it folds down, because that's the ultimate, you know. (laughs) And in the next scene, he, he arrives at this beautiful restaurant, and he climbs out of the car, he gives the key to a valet, the valet, valet parks the car or does whatever with it, probably takes it for a spin. But, but they don't show that. <laughs> That's reality. Um, and, and, and then as he goes into this restaurant, he meets this beautiful young woman, and, and she's just head over heels over him, and they go in and they enjoy their time, they laugh and you know just enjoy it in the restaurant. And... Then in the next scene, you see them lying on this beautiful beach, you know, white sandy beach with beautiful blue water and, you know, the palm trees, the whole, the whole thing, <laughs> all right? And it's at that point where some voice overcomes and they say something like, infinity, the new fragrance from, you know, whatever. <laughs> and it's mostly in an accent you can't understand anyway. But <laughs> that's about the point where I roll my eyes, I look at my wife and I say, what on earth did this have to do with cologne. (laughs) I have no idea. (laughs) But that's marketing, right? That's marketing. 
The whole point of marketing is to try to show you that your life will just be excellent if you go ahead and buy their product. That's what it's about. So I, I think I saved some of your students some time and money now. That's marketing, all right? Some of you in the marketing. <laughs> you know, they, they try to show you what most people believe to be the good life. That's why silly ads like that work. <laughs> I'm sure most of us here have looked at ads like that, you know, and some of those scenes, and we think to ourselves, wow, that would be good, hey? Oh, that, that, that looks really nice. That's the good life. You know, having tons of money, nobody telling you where you should go, where you should be at any point. You can just do whatever you want. You can get whatever you want. Um, and just do with life whatever you wanted to do with it. We, we'll think that's, that's the good life. That's the type of life that many people are actually chasing after on a daily basis, thinking that as soon as they've reached that, well, th then life will be good. <laughs> now, we also find examples like that, of people like that, in the Bible um, that, that have chased after this good life. And one example that comes to mind, a prominent example, is, of course, Solomon. You know, this man was incredibly wise and wealthy. Incredibly wise and wealthy. And as the king of Israel, he was, of course, very famous. And he had a lot of influence and a lot of power as king. And it, it looked like he had everything that people would think that makes up the good life. You know, when the queen of Sheba heard of Solomon, you read about that in 2 Corinthians 9 and some other parts as well, but when she heard of Solomon and his wisdom and his wealth, she went to visit him to prove whether or not the stories that she heard of him was actually true. Were actually true. Mix up my tenses again. And so she asked him a lot of very tough questions, and he was able to answer her on every single thing. That was the incredible wisdom that he had. And the Bible says there in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 9 that when, he saw, when she saw his wisdom and she saw his riches, she was breathless. It amazed her so much. Think about that she's also a queen. <laughs> but his riches and wisdom and all that he had, everything that she saw there, just left her breathless. But then we find this book of Ecclesiastes, and, and I ask you to, to find it, so we're going to turn there now. We have the book of Ecclesiastes where Solomon wrote about all that he achieved and what he finally thought about it. So look at, let's look at chapter 1 and verse 12. While you're finding that, I'm just going to refill. Chapter 1, verse 12. He says there, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sort travail hath God given to the son, sons of men to be exercised therewith. So Solomon educated himself in everything that he could find. He just wanted to learn more and more and more. But he finally found out that doesn't bring the good life. Look at verse 14. He said, I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. It's all just useless. So next up, after education, he tried out wisdom. Look at verse 16. He said, I commune with mine own heart, saying, Lo, I am come to great estate, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have, 
been before me in Jerusalem. Yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I gave my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and, and folly. So he was wiser than anybody that came before him. The wisest man. And to learn the difference between, between the two, you know, wisdom and folly, he gave himself to both so that he could see what the difference is and in the end distinguish between the two. You know, wisdom and folly are obviously polar opposites of each other. So he could finally learn to distinguish between the two and therefore also increase even more in wisdom. But look there at the end of verse 17 what he said about that. He said, I perceive that this also is vexation of spirit. It's just, it's, it's useless. Look at verse 18. He said there, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he that increaseth knowledge increaseth sorrow. So he found out that being the wisest person on earth, or being educated and wise, just doesn't bring the good life. It's vanity, it's vexation of spirit. And so next, he tried pleasures, and he tried all sorts of material possessions. Look at chapter 2, verse 3. <clears throat> We're going to read a few verses here. He says, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, when they should do, uh, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. So he looked at pleasures, and then next, verse 4, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I wish I could make a Scottish or an Irish accent. <laughs> because <laughs> that, <laughs> I practiced it. I couldn't do it. But <laughs> that sounds like a Scottish or an Irish guy. I made me gardens and orchards. And I planted trees in them of all kind of fruits. I made me pools of water to water there with the wood that bringeth forth trees. I got me servants and maidens. I had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. Nobody had as much as him, you know, until he came on the scene. He, he had the most of everybody. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the, words that, all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold... All was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. This man got everything that he wanted. And to most people, that would sound like the perfect life. Never mind the good life. That's the, that's the perfect life. But here you have a first-hand account of somebody that had it all. He'd done it all, or did it all, rather. And he concluded that all of it was just vanity. Vanity and vexation of spirit. It's useless. Look at what he says there in verse 17 of chapter 2. He says, Therefore, I hated life. 
because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. This man seemed to have it all. You know, in Second Chronicles 9 verse 22, we read that Solomon was richer and wiser than all the kings of the earth, and we also saw that he knew it as well. But when Solomon looked at all of it, and he, he concluded that it all was just useless. It's useless. And instead of it being the good life, we read here, he said, I hated life. That doesn't sound good to me. In fact, we find this all over history. Solomon is not unique in this. We're, we're people that seem to be living it up. Everybody look, looks at them and they think, wow, that's a wonderful life. We call them celebrities, don't we? <laughs> we look at that and we think, wow, they live a great life. They have no worries. They, everything's just great there. But they just don't seem to get the satisfaction from life that we would think they actually get from it. So does that then mean that it is impossible to enjoy this life? Well, no, not really. You know, God gave us this life, and we should love it, and we should enjoy the goodness that we can get from this life, and we should do that every day. And there is a way to enjoy it, and there's a way to love it, even if, if we are faced with very tough circumstances in our lives. And so we can go back to 1 Peter chapter 3, and you can leave Ecclesiastes behind. Peter shows us here a way to actually achieve that that joy and, and, and enjoying life. Let's look at verse 8. He says there, Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. So here, Peter gives us a recipe to living a good life and actually enjoying it. We get that from verse 10 where he said, For he that will love life and see good days. And the concepts that he mentions here I think are very simple, very straightforward, but they are extremely powerful if actually applied in your life. So first, there in verse 8, he mentions the believer's attitude towards others. Um, he says there, finally, be ye all of one mind. Now, we zoomed into these verses, verse 8 and 9, actually, last time uh, that we went through this text. So I'm not going to repeat everything uh, that we said, well, when was that? Two weeks ago. But in, in short, as the church, we should all be of one mind. We should all be on the same mission, and we should help each other to actually achieve that same goal that we are heading towards. So we need to figure out what that goal is, and we should all go towards that. He says the, that we should have compassion one of another. So we should share each other's joys and pain. I thought about this, you know, uh, since we went through this last time. And I, to be honest, this, having compassion one of another 
has stuck out to me now for the past two weeks, well, three weeks actually, since, since I've prepared that previous lesson. We should have compassion one with each other. We should share each other's joys and pain. It's so important. We should be there for each other. And, and not only within the church, but we should actually also be there for unbelievers. You know, besides for things like persecution and, and things specific to what Christians go through, unbelievers go through many of the same type of difficulties and problems that we go through in life because we're both human beings, believers and unbelievers alike. And as children of God, we can actually, we're equipped to assist them and to show them where they can find help. Now, of course, we can't make them believe in God, but we can show them that He's real. We can tell them about the difference He's made in our lives. We can tell them that He really cares, and He really does. He really does care. So I think you can see then how that can also be a way that you can finally lead them to Christ. You say, well, oh, so you just have that motive to lead them to Christ. Well, yes. We should lead them to Christ. Folks, there's no problem in this life that's going to look big on the day of judgment. Not a single problem. If somebody dies without Christ, they're going to be in a lot more trouble than they are right now. And we can help with that. We, can, we really can. Peter says here to love as brethren. So we should love each other as family because that is what we are. You know, John said in John 1 verse 12 that as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Everybody that believes in Christ and that is saved by Christ is a child of God. That means we have the same father. That means we're family. That's, that, that's a wonderful thing, I think. And so we are called to love each other. We are called to forgive each other. We are called to carry each other's burdens. That goes with compassion, doesn't it? And all of these things that we, that we almost hear on a, on a weekly basis, I want to say, or read a lot about in the New Testament, well, the entire Bible. We should love each other as brethren without expecting anything back. Because if you think about it, if, if I do some sort of loving thing towards you and I expect you to return the favor or to pay me or whatever, that's not really love, is it? <laughs> that's a transaction. That's not love. We should love as brethren. Peter says next, be pitiful. Be pitiful. Now, as we said last time, this, this, this goes a little bit further than just having compassion on one another. To have pity on somebody means that you are so affected by somebody else's pain that you are deeply moved by it. And then lastly in verse 8, he says, be courteous, which basically means to be friendly and to be considerate towards other people, which is just as important. But I think you can see that everything that Peter mentions in verse 8 all has to do with the attitude of a believer, doesn't it? And, and towards other people, of, of course. And if, if that is your attitude today, then I'm sure you can say amen to this, that you've also experienced some of the good life through that. And that's, that's 
only the first part of, of living the good life. Then here in verse 9, just find that, he says, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise, blessing. This is the second, po- second part of the recipe to a good life. And this has to do with how you react um, to evil that is committed against you. As Christians, we should not try to get revenge on anybody if they've committed some sort of evil deed against us. Even if the f- evil is just foul language, you know, that, that's the railing. Don't, don't return railing for railing. If, if, even if somebody just uses foul language against you or curses you, don't, don't return the favor. All right? We are not called to that. Instead, Peter says here, yeah, we are called to blessing. Contrarywise, blessing. We should return blessing. We should follow the example of our Lord. Jesus showed us how to do this, and, and we should pray for them. I think the best prayer that we can pray for somebody that has committed some sort of evil deed against us is, of course, for their salvation. And if it was a believer that did something against you, well, then pray that God cleans them up some more. You know, we're all a work in progress as we're here today. All of us are going through this life, and the Lord is constantly washing us and polishing us and, you know, getting, making this thing right and that thing right. The clay is always being molded. Pray that the Lord cleans that part of them up. And of course, another form of blessing somebody that has committed evil against you is to forgive them for what they did against you. You will remember that Jesus gave a parable about this in Matthew chapter 18. He, he spoke about this servant that owed the king a ton of money. You know, it was really a lot of money. And he asked the king, please forgive me this debt. And the king actually did that. He said, okay, you don't owe me anything anymore. And he just went out of the courtyard and he found another servant, his fellow servant, that owed him some money, but not that much. And he, you know, wrung this guy's neck and said, you owe me this money, you will pay everything. And he said, please forgive me my debt. No, you will pay me. You remember that? The point of that, that, that parable was that the Lord forgave us. If you are saved today, the Lord has forgiven you so much. So much. So we should be ready to forgive anybody that that sins against us. Whatever the sin was. Folks, you won't be able to enjoy this life and to see good days if you just walk around with a bitter and unforgiving heart always just thinking on how you would like to take revenge on that person that has done X, Y, or Z against you. We should be ready to forgive. And I realize what I'm saying here. I realize some things are really bad. I get that. But we are called to forgive them because the Lord forgave us. He's always ready to forgive us. Look at verse 10. He says there, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Now from here, from verse 10 up to verse 12, Peter is quoting from Psalm 34. Specifically Psalm 34 verses 12 down to verse 16. But I would like to call your attention to that very first word in, in verse 10. He says for. Now this word for connects verses 8 and 9 to whatever he's going to say next. But 
it also gives us a signal that Peter is now quoting from Scripture in order to support the point that he had just made. So it's almost like you can say, well, you should do these things, not rendering evil for evil and so on, because it is written, he that will love life and so on. So he's saying that what he just said there in verses 8 and 9 is not something new he pulled out of a hat. thought, well, this sounds nice. Let's put that in the Bible. (laughs) It's actually a practical application of what Scripture has been teaching for hundreds of years before Peter even wrote this down. Now, that in and of itself, I think, teaches us something very important. And that is that we should measure everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, we should measure it against the Bible. That in turn means that you should know your Bible (laughs) and we should read and study the Bible so that we can do that measuring. That's how Jesus and the apostles lived. It's exactly what they did. And so we will do well to actually follow in their example that, that they left for us. But now Peter gives us the third part of this recipe for a good life. And that is that the believer, he says there, um, verse 10, For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. And I think that this is probably one of the most difficult things to do. Uh, you know, to f- refrain your tongue from evil. Peter says, keep your tongue away from any evil, any evil things, any evil words or whatever. You know, James says in James 3 verse 8, that even though mankind has been taming a bunch of animals, wild animals, you know, whatever, all sorts of animals, nobody is able to tame the tongue. (laughs) I think you've, you've found that in your life as well as I have. He says, it is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. That's James 3 verse 8. And that's true, isn't it? The tongue is extremely unruly. It only takes a second of you not paying attention. And then you've told some sort of lie. Or you've gossiped about somebody. Or or you've returned some sort of insult when they insulted you. Whatever it may be, you know. We must be careful to keep our tongues in check. James says there in James 3 verse 6 that, I'm just going to read this for you, that the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. That doesn't sound good. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. That is the tongue, and those are some strong words, I must say but it gives you an idea of what this thing is capable of. And it's a great warning, I think. Now, I do want to add here that this, what Peter is talking about here, I believe, not only goes for verbal communication. It's for any sort of communication. Even when you send a text message or write some sort of message on a website, whatever it might be, you know. Um, I want to say especially, uh, it's, it's even harder then when you don't face somebody. You know, the internet has given us this feeling that we are sort of anonymous. And I can tell that guy (laughs) and put him in his place however I want to. Um, I unfortunately see that a lot. And so people would say anything at all on the internet. Uh, Be careful. Be Be careful of what you do. 
As we'll see there in verse 12, the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. He's, he's looking. He's watching. He's, he's watching. But, but you see, if you want to control this tongue, then you need to go a little bit further and you first need to learn to control this heart. You will remember that Jesus said in Matthew 12, verse 34, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. So whatever is going on inside here will eventually come out of this hole. <laughs> All right? So you must keep your tongue from evil and your lips that they speak no guile, as he says here. No guile is just all sorts of lies and, and deception and hypocrisy. We should not be known for that. You know, as the children of God, we should act like our Father and we should never try to deceive anybody. Has he ever done that? I don't think so. He's not the deceiver. I know of somebody else that's called the deceiver. Yeah. As children of God, we should always speak the truth. We should not try to, to be deceptive. And that brings us then to the fourth part of a recipe of a good life. Now, firstly, we learned that we should have a loving and caring attitude as Christians. Second, we learned that we should... Respond with the blessing when evil is done against us. That's the second part of the recipe. Third, we should keep our tongues from evil and from lies. Okay. Fourth part, verse 11. He says, Let him eschew evil. And yes, that is how it is pronounced. I checked. <laughs> if you wondered. But he says, Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and Ensue it. Now, to eschew evil means to avoid it altogether. Just avoid it. And so, I think it is a rather straightforward thing to say or to tell Christians, you know, stay away from evil. Um, you're like, okay, we knew that. <laughs> we hear that a lot. But folks, as we heard in the previous hour, you need to get your expectations right. You know, you need to keep the full picture in mind here. We should stay away from any sort of evil deed to anyone else, even if you think that person deserves it. Even if that person committed evil against you, personally. Now that's where it becomes a little less straightforward, isn't it? But that is our calling. We are called to stay away from evil and to do good. You remember what Paul said in Romans 12? Romans 12, 21 says, Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what we're supposed to do. We should overcome evil with good. And finally, we read there in verse 11, Let him seek peace and ensue it. To ensue it is to pursue it. Now, to seek and pursue almost sounds like you know, a hunter that is, that is looking for his prey. Oh man, hunters can, can do that for days on end. <laughs> and they will look for the prey. And as soon as they, they see it or they find a track or whatever, they will pursue that prey until they find it and, and, and make the kill. That's the way that we should be seeking and pursuing peace with all men. I say all men. That doesn't mean that we throw out our beliefs or, or our beliefs in order to get that peace. We don't do that. We don't compromise that way. 
but as much as we can, we should be living peacefully with others. We are called to be the peacemakers in this world. You know, we should live in peace with everyone, even those who do not know the Lord and those that may actually persecute us. We should seek and pursue peace with them. You know, these five things um, in the recipe for a good life are very general, I think, and they're easy to understand. But some of, some of them may be harder to implement than others, right? I think you can agree with me. And we will need the helping hand of God in this. We should ask Him to help us. I think we've got a head start. If you're saved, you've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you. He will help you if you ask. And that brings us to the final verse of today, which is verse 12. Peter concludes, he says, For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So Peter answers, answers the question of why we should live this type of life that, that pleases God. And simply, because, simply put, it's because God is watching. He's watching. You know, whenever I get to this, I, I can't help but think of that, that song we sang as kids. You know, I think the kids still sing it. You know, be careful little eyes what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. And that's the point here. He's looking down in love. He's not, he's not looking over the righteous and, and waiting until they step out of line so that He can zap them. <laughs> that's not His attitude towards us. Instead, he, it points, this points us to our loving Father that watches over us and cares for us. Folks, He is intimately involved in your life, whether you see that or not, whether you want to admit that or not. He is involved in every minute detail. He cares for everything that is going on with you right now. And He always has. And while He is watching over you, Peter says here, His ears are open unto your prayers. Isn't that wonderful? His ears are open unto your prayers. He's, he's ready to, to listen. He's ready for you to just come to Him and speak to Him. Say, Lord, this and that is going on. Help me. I think that should be a great motivation for us to live the right way in His sight. Because we are in His sight. We're always in His sight. He's always watching. There is nothing that is hidden from Him. Folks, take advantage of that. Don't see that as a threat if you are saved. We'll get to the unsaved now. But if you are saved, take advantage of the fact that God is watching and He's waiting for you to reach out. Now on the other hand, Peter says here, and this is the quote from Psalm 34, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So his face is against those that do evil. Now this refers to him also watching over those that do evil. But, in, but instead of you know, being loving and caring in the way that he is with us, he's pronouncing judgment over them because of their evil. 
Like I said, there's nothing hidden from him. Absolutely nothing. Folks, if you are not saved today, you should know that. There is nothing hidden from the Lord. Yes, you can hide stuff from me. That's easy. I'm a bit daft. (laughs) That's easy to do. You can't hide anything from the Lord. Job found that out the hard way. That, That got him into the belly of a fish. But you can't hide anything. Folks, if you are not saved one day, God is going to make sure that justice is, sh- is served and He's going to do whatever is needed to make sure that justice is served. Whether you're saved or not, if you're saved and evil has been committed against you, rest assured in that. God will make sure that justice is served. If you're not saved, please come to Christ. That's your only way out of there. So, okay. Let's go back to where we started today. Solomon saw that chasing after knowledge and chasing after wisdom and pleasures and riches is just a huge waste of time. And in fact, he said it's totally useless. Do you remember what his conclusion was there in the book of Ecclesiastes? I'll read it to you. It's Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13. He said there, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. So that's after everything that is said in the book of Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. That's it. Fear God and keep His commandments. That's the key to living the good life here on earth. Fear God. Keep His commandments. You know, I mentioned that Peter quoted this, uh, where was it, from verse 10 to verse 12 from Psalm 34 and uh, verse 12 to 16. But do you know how, how David started off that section in Psalm 34 before this quote that, that Peter quoted? He said there in Psalm 34 verse 11, Come, ye children, hearken unto me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he says what we read here. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Do you want to live a good life? I think you do. Well, then fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. How do you fear the Lord? Well, be kind, be compassionate, be friendly and caring to others. When somebody does evil against you, bless them. Don't do the evil back. Keep your tongue from speaking evil and from speaking lies. And look for peace with everybody and pursue that peace. That is how you will live a good life and fear the Lord. All while knowing that the Lord is watching and His ears are open to your prayers. Solomon saw that that was the key. Unfortunately for him, it was too late. God help us so that we don't wait until it's too late for us to enjoy this life. Let's, let's pray. Lord, you've given us everything that we need in your word. You're so faithful, Lord. We thank you for your word. We thank you for caring for us. Every time I think about you caring for us and for every minute detail, and I'm, I'm left breathless to know that, Lord. Thank you so much for your grace and your mercy towards us. Lord, we thank you for saving us, for those that are saved here today. For those that are not, Lord, may you prick their hearts. May you, may you bring them to you. 
May they come and ask how to be saved. We thank you, Lord, that you've, you've told us you didn't keep it a secret. And it's not something that a man made up. You've given it to us, Lord. Lord, help us to apply these principles so that we may enjoy this life and have a good life. Well, for however many days we still have left on this earth, Lord, help us to, to live it right in your sight. Will you please keep on working in our hearts? Please keep us safe throughout this day and help us to apply everything that we learned today in our lives, Lord, and to build it in so that we may be molded even more into the image of Jesus Christ. We thank you for all that you do, and we thank you for being with us today, Lord. And we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.